everybody, and welcome to episode 520 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It is Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. The music you're hearing right now, you know, we're going old school. We're stripping things back a little bit with this episode, uh, just because I had a lot going on this week. And uh, yeah, anyway, uh, stripping things back a little bit. The song is... Our theme song. It's the Monster Kid Radio theme song that you're hearing right now. It's kind of a surfed up version of In the Hall of the Mountain King. So that's what you're hearing right now. You'll hear it again at the end of the show. But you know what else you're going to hear in this episode of Monster Kid Radio? Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. Talking about an episode of Ultraman in which an Ultraman or Ultra Q or Ultra Cut. You know what? It's the return of a kaiju that I really like. From Ultra Q. It's not my favorite, but it is one of my favorites. I don't know if that helps, but it is about the return of one of my favorite kaijus, and I can't wait for Mark to tell you about it. Also, in this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, courtesy of our man Kenny down in Old Mexico, he talks about a movie that uh, I would have never thought we'd ever cover here on Monster Kid Radio. Um, it's relevant, it makes sense, and he produced the entire segment himself, and I love it. So Kenny, thank you. Mark, thanks for the Beta Capsule review, and guys and gals, thank you for downloading the show this week. I don't want to spend a lot of time here just kind of jibber-jabbering away. I know I promised a roll call of executive producers and all that in this week's episode, but you know, I'm just going to have to push that back until next week. In the meantime, here's all of this. Live from the land of light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. What would you do if there were five seconds before the explosion of an atom bomb? That scenario drives the action of Ultraman's fourth episode, a great blend of all the elements that make the show tick. Ripped from the files of, it seemed like a good idea at the time, a rocket ship is carrying atomic bombs to Jupiter when something goes wrong and the rocket plummets back to Earth, scattering the weapons over a swath of ocean. Four of them are located, but the fifth and final bomb remains missing. The science patrol swings into recovery mode while allowing Fuji some much-deserved vacation days, which she shares with Hoshino. The urgent search for the missing atom bomb turns desperate when a 30-meter aquatic monster destroys a passing ship and the sole survivor of the attack recalls the bomb is attached to the monster. Fuji's vacation is interrupted when the creature surfaces at Hayama Marina and, seemingly driven mad by radiation, threatens to blow the resort area sky high. It looks like a job for Ultraman, but this time, there is no room for error. Fans of Ultra Q will be pleased to witness the return of Ragon in five seconds before the explosion, and it's very interesting to note the continuity that's created between series. 
We know of the Ragon because of Ultra Q, and there are characteristics about the monster revealed in episode 20 of that series that carry over into Ultraman episode 4, specifically the ability to attract Ragon with music. When that doesn't work too well, it's theorized that the monster has been drastically altered by radiation, a point corroborated by its enormous size. All of which is to say, the Science Patrol knows about and accepts the existence of the Ragon, which suggests a shared universe of some sort with Ultra Q, a fictional reflection of the practical reality. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Hey, you want to die, huh? Rev it up. Action you've never seen races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture-making, Carnival of Souls. This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. Try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the Carnival of Souls. She is a girl driven mad by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. 
Honey, you don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the Carnival of Souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are talking about the Hammer sci-fi flick, Moon Zero Two. Now, this movie was not covered in FM, but I found a movie whose title starts with Moon, is British, takes place in space, and has no monsters that was covered. That movie is 1979's Moonraker, a film way out of MKR's wheelhouse, but not FM's. Let's hear some of the highlights of the article found in FM 156 from August of 1979. 007 gets near to heaven, the hard way, via a blast to outer space. What has to be the biggest, costliest, and most lavish James Bond epic ever filmed is heading our way from the British Isles, Moonraker. Like most of the Bond films, is a movie packed with action and adventure, science fact and science fiction. After spending millions of dollars and months of preparation, the latest in the JB series promises to be the most incredible adventure ever filmed. Technically speaking, Moonraker is near perfect. Great care was taken in building the sets, designing the rockets, and the laboratories. Every attention to detail was painstakingly handled by the best men in the business. Peter Biggs was one of the engineers whose credits go back to 2001 A Space Odyssey. He handled the visuals for the battle sequence at the film's end. Moonraker also boasts plenty of full-size sets and exact miniature copies. For model buffs, we are sure you will be pleased by the careful marriage of live action and matte work and models accomplished in this production. Much of the technology used in this movie is similar in concept and execution to 2001 and Star Wars. Live action coupled with front and rear projection, mats and full-size sets enhance the action taking place. Set design, which one person described as out of this world, was handled by Ken Adam, who also worked on two other Bond films, The Spy Who Loved Me and You Only Live Twice. John Barry wrote the music for seven of the ten Bond films and has come through again for Moonraker. The score is said to be a chart topper. Filming for Moonraker took place around the world in exotic places like Rio, Guatemala, Italy, and France. Two enormous studios were used for interiors, including the underground complex and the space station. They were at Pinewood, where 2001 was shot, and in France. One of the space technology advisors hired by the Moonraker production team was NASA's Eric Burgess. He felt that the premise of this James Bond pick was not so far-fetched, after all. There are groups on Earth today, he was quoted as saying, that could establish a station in space for their own sinister ends. Trying to keep a lid on production with a minimal amount of news leakage, the 007 crew employed some incredible security methods similar to those used in Close Encounters. Transporting sets across the English Channel to France, tight security was used. A team of 100 special effects men and women worked at the Pinewood Studios and transported themselves along with tons of material to France 
for filming the Moonraker complex scenes. The secrecy involved was worthy of 007's talents. We are promised another full line of eye-popping gadgets, including a gondola that converts into a hovercraft. Even before the titles appear on the screen, our eyes are treated to an incredible display of activity carried out by highly trained stuntmen. One journalist assigned to the Moonraker set reported that no other production could have caused such a fuss. The still photographer alone took some 35,000 pictures. But what will interest FM fans and Bond buffs everywhere is the lavish set built for the three-tier space station. It's recorded as the biggest set ever built in France, sitting some 108 feet high by 47 feet across, taking more than 200 technicians eight weeks to build. The set holds 100 tons of metal, two tons of nails, and over 10,000 feet of wood. The result is staggering. No models used here. Moonraker is sure to join the ranks of other Bond films and be remembered as a first-rate movie. It will also be recognized as one of the truly great space spectacles. Bond in orbit, a star man named 007. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. in one shock show. Horror of Frankenstein and Scars of Dracula. Your ticket entitles you to be frightened out of your wits at no extra charge. Horror of Frankenstein and Scars of Dracula. In color, rated R. Nightmare terror from the tomb. An ancient curse comes to life to strangle the living and raise the dead. Here is the horror and the terror of a story that began in ancient Egypt. Take that, obey! Take it! When Ka Bey, a son of Pharaoh, died in the desert and was covered in the shroud that bore the sacred power of life and death. What was he saying? He says that death awaits all who disturb the resting place of Kato Bay. Warning to every creature of flesh and blood, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the curse of the mummy's shroud. This is the leader of the British expedition who came in search of the tomb. <laughs> the rich and ruthless financier who believes money can bribe even the devil himself. This is the son who knows there is no escape. Someone or, or something is trying to destroy us. I believe it'll find us wherever we go. The wife and mother trapped by the mummy's shroud. Ah, uh, I, I see death. This is Haiti the crystal gazer, 
who sees into the past and the terrifying future. This is the girl who is doomed, cursed by the mummy shroud. You mean I'm going to die? <laughs> In a few minutes from now. <laughs> A thousand years. Now he lives and breathes to avenge an ancient curse. To strangle the living. Praise the dead. And prey upon human flesh. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. We were just talking before I hit record, and this conversation, this episode has been, what did you say, two and a half years in the making? Mm-hmm, yeah. Two and a half years in the making. And in two and a half years in a day, because I'm actually talking to somebody in the future right now, uh, calling in from, well... I guess we're recording this on, mo- on Sunday, so you're Monday. <laughs> it's Alistair Hughes. How are you doing, man? I'm doing really well, thanks, Derek. And can, can I just say welcome to the futuristic space year of 2021? There you go. There you when go. apparently we can ride a rocket Texas style and have a shootout in Moon City and even play a game of Moonopoly. <laughs> wow. Uh, yes, we're talking about Moon Zero Two. And wow, yeah, what, a, what a movie. <laughs> Listen to you. Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this is a Hammer film. And this is something that we've talked about here on the show a few times when we talk about Hammer movies with different people. And it's something that we used to bring up back when I was doing the 1951 Down Place podcast with Scott and Casey, which will come back someday, is that Hammer, you know, they're known for their horror. But they were doing stuff before they got into the gothic horror. And then even as they were doing the gothic horror, they were doing other non-horror projects. And this one came out in 1969. So they're still doing their gothic horror stuff. They're still guilting Christopher Lee into doing vampire movies. But, (laughs) you know, they're doing other things as well. And this is one of the few science fiction movies that they actually tackled. And I watched it again this morning to kind of refresh my memory. I had forgotten that high hammerhead Michael Carreras himself wrote this. It's it's interesting, Derek. As you know, Michael Carreras ended up taking over Hammer. Mm -hmm. But he was never that keen on the gothic horrors, personally. Um, He wanted to try new things. He, He liked adventure movies. He liked movies of all kinds of different genres. And in fact, I was reading that he was even involved in one of the first ever spaghetti westerns which was ever filmed in uh, Italy. 
it's maybe in some ways not too surprising that science fiction and westerns finally collided in Michael Carreras's mind, coupled with the fact that obviously around this time the moon landing was huge news and on everyone's minds, that um, this wholly remarkable film came into being. He was known for being a fan of making money. And he yes. knew that the horror movies made the money, but mm -hmm. he always wanted to do so much more. He wanted to do musicals, westerns, and here we are with probably the most traditional science fiction movie that Hammer ever did. Mm. Uh, you can see science fiction elements in the Quatermass films or Four-Sided Triangle and things like that. Yes. But this one, it is, you know, outer space, spaceships, shootouts, you're on the moon, you're talking about going to other planets. It is your traditional sci-fi film through the Hammer lens. And I find it fascinating. Yes, in fact, it's been called um, Hammer's only film to be actually set in the future. I mean, obviously, it's not the future for you and I, because we're actually in the futuristic space year 2021 as we speak. <laughs> I'd maybe suggest that Spaceways... That was the other one I was going to bring up. ...is set in the future, but it's a kind of undefined future. It's sort of nudged a little way into the future when obviously space travel is happening, but it's not actually stated. So, um... Yeah, Moon Zero 2 is unique, <laughs> as I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> Spaceways came out in the 50s, uh, and it was before uh, they did Curse of Frankenstein, Horror Dracula, and any of that. So it was still Hammer trying to define itself. But it's directed by Terrence Fisher, and I would recommend it for that, because Terrence Fisher is great. Oh, sure. But that's not to take anything away from Moon Zero 2, which is also directed by one of the great Hammer directors, Roy Ward Baker. Indeed. And again, it's such a weird movie when you look at hammer's filmography but if you think about what was going on in the world like you said you got the moon landing and you know moon fevers running pretty high yeah. and i feel like the people behind this movie knew that even though it's a british production the opening credits mm -hmm. really focus on the space race between the u.s and russia with that animated sequence of the u.s astronaut and and the cosmonaut trying to lay claim to the moon and then running to the other side of the moon to pull down each other's flags and then going back and putting the flags back up again. So, I mean, they're even referencing that, even though it's a British production. Exactly. It, that opening sequence is something else. It's um, Oh, I love it's it. Sort of, oh, me too. The, the animation's sort of uh, reminiscent of maybe the Pink Panther movies. Mm -hmm. But what really, really hits me right between the eyes every time is that is that theme song. <laughs> I was actually reading about it, Derek, and this is this is something which I think needs to be needs to be stated up front. Um, one one of the title song's co-writers described the eventual recording of the song as 20% faster and 50% louder than he had actually intended, and he's actually called the result a full-on sonic body tackle. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, and it totally just that sums it up, man. That's crazy. it totally does. <laughs> it it really is such a bombastic and kind of in your face and mm -hmm. still of its time. 
kind of it's certainly not timeless uh, the way like Star Wars or something is you know it, it's when you think about other big epic science fiction scores sure but it's certainly of its time and I, I dig it too I love it too I try to play it every once in a while on the show and I haven't lately but I'm certainly going to play it this week oh um, I think so. <laughs> It does turn up on some of those Hammer soundtrack compilation discs, but it's usually just the title sequence. You know, I don't think you really hear any of the other incidental music, which there's not a lot to me that really stood out in this. I know there's some, but there's so much music that's kind of, um, I don't know the exact term for it, at least I'm blanking on it this morning or this afternoon, but so much of it is, is basically source music. Uh, you know, yes. you hear at the bar or the dancers doing their little weird circular dance. The um, gojos. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, it's that kind of music. I think that the, the sound design of the entire film is interesting. And I think in some ways it's they're actually, it's a nod towards, uh, b- believe it or not, in Moon Zero Two, scientific accuracy. Mm-hmm they're playing a lot with the idea that sound doesn't carry in an airless environment in in space. And a lot of the sequences are silent. So I guess that's then reflected on the soundtrack itself, that they are, you know, being respectful to this uh, scientific fact. I really appreciated that when I became aware of it. Um, Mm. You know, when I watch a movie, sometimes I try to turn off the the criticism or the filmmaker part of my brain because I just want to enjoy the movie, darn it, but I can't turn that off altogether. It's going to creep back in, which is, you know, whatever. That's how I enjoy movies, I guess. I just have to accept it. But I'm watching this movie, and specifically when the two characters getting out of the moon bug, when they're trying to, right before they come across the corpse, it occurred to me, we're not hearing them step on the steps coming down from the moon bug. We didn't hear the door open. Oh, yeah. It's like in 2001. You don't hear sound in Mm -hmm. outer space. That makes perfect Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. And then it occurred to me, Hammer probably was trying to save a little bit of money, too, by not handling the sound there. (laughs) (laughs) So tip to low-budget filmmakers, if you don't want to have to worry about sound, set your movie in outer space. Not that you're you, going to save you, much money, but you with, with with some of the work that you're doing, Derek, you'd of course have a, a a very clear understanding of the time and effort involved in in oh, yeah. that kind of work. Oh, yeah, man, I, I hate footsteps. I hate footsteps so much. <laughs> um, you know, I had I had to do footsteps on a short film for somebody. I don't even know if that movie got done, and I hate it so much. Hmm. I don't mind doing sound for anything else. I'll do heavy breathing, I'll do sword fights, I'll do punches, I'll do animals. I hate footsteps so much. Interesting. Just just the timing, just to try to get yeah, it timed yeah. just right. It's just... But anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah. if you want me to do your sound effects, if you want me to do footsteps, I'll still do it for you. You can pay me for it. That's fine. You know, I'm just, just saying, you know, I might charge you double. Um <laughs> I was I was fantasizing as I often do about you know the ultimate Blu-ray release of this oh. movie because you know maybe we can talk about it a bit later but there's a fairly extensive effect sequence which they put a lot of work into which didn't appear in the final film for reasons. Hmm. But if we ever get to a deluxe Blu-ray release of Moon Zero Two and why not? Maybe we can take you on, Derek, if we want to add some Foley work, which maybe should be there, or tighten okay. up some, some sound. <laughs> Sounds good. I work cheap. Why not? I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, hammer, horror, it's just kind of where my brain goes. But there was some real thought 
put behind a lot of the production design and the effects work. Mm -hmm. Some of it looks a little silly at this point mm -hmm. because we've seen anti-gravity done better since then. Sure. But it's still enough for me to appreciate what they were doing. And I think that's where I, I had the most fun was being able to yeah. appreciate what they were trying to do here. If they had tried to do this movie like 10 years later, like post Star Wars, I don't know what it would even look like. Yeah, when when I was watching the zero gravity bar brawl, <laughs> <laughs> which um, for your legions of listeners, if you haven't seen the sequence, everyone, I cannot recommend it highly enough. But uh, it just reminded me of Moonraker. There's a there's yeah. a sequence on Drax's uh, uh, space station where the gravity goes off and everyone starts filling into there. Uh, apparently at the time, this was the most amount of actors that they had ever had to suspend on strings, which is obviously how they did it back then. Mm -hmm. It's a really impressive sequence with so many bodies floating through there. And I just thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if Moon Zero 2 could have managed something like that instead of this weird <laughs> slow motion ballet thing that we get? But anyway... Did they even bother to overcrank the camera? It felt like they just had the performers move slow. I got the impression that it was a lot of physical acting from yeah. the performers, um, <laughs> who all seemed to be operating at different levels of gravity, depending on depending on what was happening. The dancers are still dancing, no problem, but the one woman <laughs> sinks into her chair and somebody else is kind of floating. It, yeah, it's... <laughs> There's something that gravity should have affected. I wasn't going to get to this so soon, but I'm afraid I just have to get this off my chest. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm never mean-spirited about these films, but sure. um, there's something that I need to address, and I'm talking about the giant shining orb, which mesmerizes all who gaze up at it. That majestically curved, glowing hemisphere which draws all eyes throughout this film. Am I talking about the light side of the moon? No. I'm talking about James Olsen's enormous forehead. <laughs> no. Oh. I'm in no position to criticize, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm not. Yeah. yeah. But, but in a film where almost the entire female cast are required to wear a variety of wigs, couldn't they have found him a toupee? I mean, I, I, I love his character and I love his performance. You know, Bill, Bill Kemp, the first man on Mars, he's, he's cool, he's confident, he takes moon dust from nobody. But he should also have known that a comb-over is never going to work in zero gravity. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's not your typical hammer hero, is he? He isn't, and I and I understand that he was inherited as part of a, a job lot when they did the co-financing with Warner Brothers. They um, mm. ended up with, with James Olsen. Or as Catherine Schell refers to him in an interview, Jimmy Olsen, which kind of got my Superman fan uh, ears pricked wow. up. Jimmy yeah. Olsen? Oh, of course, yeah. But he actually went on to have a really good uh career especially on tv and in fact if you look on his imdb page this photograph is just priceless derek there's a shot of him being lassoed by linda carter as wonder woman 
and I'm and I'm thinking, just l- looking at this photograph, I'm thinking, well, there you go, James Olsen. Things didn't work out too badly for you after all, did they? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, there are worse positions to find yourself in, I suppose. Absolutely, and you know, just just keep keeping with science fiction, he went on to star in the Andromeda Strain not yeah. too long after this movie. He had a fairly major role in Amityville Two as the um, priest. So, you know, he's he's been around, and um, I think he may even still be with us, Derek. I'm, I'm not certain. But, yeah, James Olsen. Interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. But, yeah, no, he did go on to do, uh, like you said, Andromeda Strain. I forgot about Amityville, too. Um, well, mm, for, a, I for, think, a, for a number of reasons. but Yeah, lots of people have. <laughs> <laughs> but he's our lead guy, uh, Kemp. He wants to explore. He's a pilot. He doesn't want to basically sell out and just be a passenger guy. Exactly. He doesn't just ferry people around. He he is there because he wants to explore. He wants. He, he's like this, not necessarily like gunfighter on the old west or whatever. Mm. But he's he's got this kind of like I'm this frontier guy and here's civilization coming in kind of vibe. I was getting off of him. I got a very strong kind of Han Solo yeah. vibe from him as well. I mean, you know. Long before the um, the used universe uh, design ethos of Star Wars, Bill Kemp literally is flying a piece of junk. That's and true. everyone admits it, himself in- included. And he isn't interested in babysitting tourists and doing the and doing the tourist routes and everything else. He wants excitement. He wants to explore. And um, I think in terms of a well-defined character, Maybe in Hammer films in, in general, I think Bill Kemp is actually one of the most defined and, and relatable characters that they've ever written. You can absolutely understand his frustration and his point of view. What I don't understand, though, is his desire to go to Venus. I mean, I can understand the asteroid belt. I can understand the outer planets. But Venus isn't a place that anybody wants to go to. I think they might have understood that even in 1969. But hey, apart from that. <laughs> the accuracy is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I did like his character a lot. Um mm. and yeah, I mean they kind of flirt with a little bit of, of romance with him, but Yes. It's again, it's not nearly as strong as you see in some of like the Hammer Frankenstein films or Dracula films. And and I appreciated that. You know, I, I really did enjoy the character quite a bit. And I felt like I would have liked to have had more with him and the character of Liz, uh, played by Adrian Corey. I, I liked their relationship Me and too. the back and forth. There's a little bit of like a, an antagonistic. It was kind yeah. of charged a little bit. I yeah. really liked their back and forth a lot. She's an extremely strong lady. I mean, they mm-hmm. they, they begin by having a um, essentially, I guess you could call it a um, love scene. But at the end of that scene, she is without a doubt the person who is going to bring his career to an end no questions asked she Mm -hmm. is the woman that he has to deal with so you know it was a really interesting uh, dynamic there and adrian corey is always good yeah she is vampire circus is another one of her of her amazing roles where once again she's a very strong very formidable character yeah and i'm a big fan of vampire circus so when Mm -hmm. i saw her in this i'm like yeah okay it's going to remind me that it's a Hammer film because it's got somebody from another vampire movie that I recognize. But exactly, one of the strongest performers from that vampire circus is in this Definitely. film too, and she brings everything to bear here. So mm-hmm. I really enjoyed her 
performance here. Uh, and, and again, the chemistry back and forth, just such a unique, interesting relationship. I'm not a big fan of like, I'll get to that point here in a minute. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going I'm to sit on that one. Interesting. Um, Interesting. I'm sit on that okay. one. But um, can we talk about Catherine Shell? I love her headpiece when she comes in. She's, she's described that as making her look like a space nun. Yes. And I was, I was so glad when she finally took it off because she's got such beautiful hair. But, yeah, I was glad when she finally lost that part of her costume. The first time I saw this and she's wearing that, I thought, is this shorthand to show that she's part of some sort of religious order? Is there yes. something? Yes. No, it's just what the fashion was. Yeah, exactly. When it comes off, the rest of her costume makes her look like the Grand Moffess Tarkin, actually. The, yeah. The resemblance to uh, Peter Cushing's outfit in Star Wars is quite quite remarkable. She's maybe not wearing the carpet slippers, but with everything else. Yeah. I, I don't know how familiar you are with Space 1999, Derek. Was it a big thing in the States? Uh, I'm familiar with it. I've not seen a lot. I mean, I've seen some of it, but I, I know mm. what it was. And uh, I even, somebody was doing like a fan audio drama at one point and I got to play a role in it you know, years oh, wow. ago. Uh, I think it got taken off the internet though, because the people who own Space 1999 <laughs> found out about it. But um, yeah. But yeah, no, I'm familiar with it. And she was in that too, wasn't she? She absolutely was. In fact, for many of us of a certain age, she's the thing that we remember most about Space 1999. Oh, yeah? She played a character called Maya. She was essentially the Mr. Spock of Space 1999 oh, okay. in the second series where they decided that they weren't going to make it quite so intellectual and they made it more of a, an obvious ad- adventure series. They brought in this character called Maya, played by Catherine Schell, her thing was that she could metamorphosize into any creature that she wanted to. So they bought on a lot of great rubber monster suits, often with David Prowse inside them, strangely enough. But Maya was gorgeous. And a certain female co-star, who I'm not going to mention, but if you know anything about Space 1999, you'll be able to work out who it was was reputedly a little bit envious of Catherine Schell and didn't want to be eclipsed in the glamour stakes. So what she insisted was that Maya's alien makeup just had to be pretty bizarre. And it was, but it just didn't work, Derek. Everyone Mm. I know just loved Maya and loved Catherine Schell. That bizarre makeup couldn't suppress her charisma and her beauty. And as I say, she's she's one of the things that everyone remembers most about Space 1999. So when I found out that she was a hammer girl, I was just delighted. And, And I really enjoy her performance here. I think Clementine Taplet is just wonderful, and she's a great partnership with um, Bill Kemp. I just love their um, back and forth. Again, it's another one of these relationships that I really enjoyed, especially when they're trapped in the moon bug or they're trying to get back mm. and they're going to run out of air. And the, the whole thing with the, the last third of the film, they even have the moment where they both have to strip down to their skivvies because they're burning up. And even though Kemp's like, oh, hey, you know, just for a second. Mm. Yes, yes, <laughs> Which, just, I mean, just for a second. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, <laughs> I mean I, okay, I wouldn't. Uh, be. Like, I, I'm just saying, you know, she, she, she's a very pretty girl. Uh, you're, 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 you're absolutely not just uh, talking for yourself there, uh, <laughs> Derek. But l- let me just say in our defense, 
it is an equal opportunity skin show because he's also stripping down. So, you know, that kind of makes it. The first time she sees him. Yeah. He's getting out of the shower. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Um, but but this, this scene in, in the moon bug did sort of irrepressibly remind me of a similar scene in Star Trek Into Darkness when Dr. Carol Marcus, played by oh. Alice Eve, strips down to her underwear for absolutely no apparent reason. Yeah. You know, in, in, in Moon Zero 2, at least there's plenty of reason. They've reached the light side of the moon. The thermal protection in their moon bug isn't working. They're in serious danger. And, uh, yeah, enjoyed it a lot. You got to do something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <You know. laughs> they didn't let it fall into, uh, hey, you know, here's hot dude, hot chick, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. They, didn't, they didn't go into that. And, no. and I appreciated the restraint there. She gives him a quick kiss on the forehead, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. you couldn't really miss it. Um, she gives him a quick peck at the very end of the film, and I think that's about all of the physical interaction that they really have, which is surprising and maybe even refreshing for a uh, Emma film. Again, one of these things that I really enjoyed about the movie is that there was mm. this sense of restraint regarding that part of that relationship. Yeah. If if the story had continued, maybe something would have happened. But, you know, for this feature film, for, for what it was, I really enjoyed it. And exactly. Well, I mean, just not, not wanting to jump too far ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Michael Carreras was so confident about this movie that he immediately started talking about a sequel which was to be called Disaster in Space. Oh, wow. Which is kind of unfortunate given the box office reception that this one got. Mm. But anyway, you can speculate what might have happened in, in, in the sequel. Obviously, there would have been a burgeoning relationship between Clementine and um, Bill Kemp. Sure. But um, Michael Carreras was also talking about a prospective TV series. Ooh. I mean, we can only wonder... What could have happened there? That would have been fun. I would have liked that. Wouldn't it? It would have been great fun. Um, You know, um, westerns were still very popular on TV around that time. It would have been, in fact, when Star Trek was sold to the networks originally, and you'll know this far better than me, Derek, that it was sold as a wagon train to the stars. Sure. that, That kind of vibe. That's one of the things that I really liked about this movie, too, is that I felt like there was enough put into... The production design, I keep going back to that, the mm. the costume design, the look of the film, that it could have easily expanded into something else. It could have easily yes. expanded into a sequel, a franchise. I keep thinking about the uh, Wild Wild Planet films. Um, yeah. That series of four Italian science fiction films that are all yes. kind of connected. You know, and I could have seen that done with Moon Zero too. Yeah, uh, because yeah. there's enough there. I feel like there is enough opportunity for different stories to tell with these two characters. In fact, just to kind of expand that even more, I yeah. think it's a missed opportunity. It is, and and in fact, talking about the production design and the costume design, this is something else that you might be aware of, Derek. But this film called sort of spawned the most unusual and unlikely bit of tie-in merchandise that I think a Hammer film has ever had. Okay. And that is the famous Avon 
Plastics 1970 Moon Base 2 calendar. The images from this are quite easy to find online, but I will send you a link, if you don't mind, that you can put in the show notes if, sure. you, if you want to. Because this calendar consisted of 12 especially taken large format photographs of the two actresses who play J.J. Hubbard's consorts in a variety of the costumes from the movie, all shot on sets, a different set from the movie. Now, this photography is really, really good. It stands up even today, but it also gives you a really good look at the costume design and the set design, which you maybe didn't get when you're watching the actual movie. So, you know, I would really strongly recommend having a look at these images. They're beautifully taken, tastefully taken, and they give you a really nice look at, at the work that went into um, the production. I just, uh, while you were t- telling me about it, it's like, oh, I need to see this. So I just did a real quick Google search, and I just found it over at uh, the website, The Reprobate of All Places. Yeah. Uh, and they have the 12 photos that were used for the calendar. Mm. And you're right, this is a great resource here. You've mm. got one shot where the two women are wearing the the spacesuits. Yeah. You've got, uh, you know, there's the the lander behind them. There's them in the mm-hmm. in the uh, on far side uh, five. Wow, mm. this Great. is really cool. Yeah, this is this is wonderful. I've heard that occasionally copies of the calendar itself do turn up on eBay. Now I can't imagine what they would go for, but I would be sorely te- sorely tempted. I really would. Yeah, that this is something else. Mm. Oh, yeah, the Moon Hotel in that egg chair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting just going back to that time at the dawn of the 1970s with the, with the moon landings and everything mm-hmm. on, on everyone's minds. Everyone was so optimistic about the future. We were going to have people living on the moon by the end of the decade. This was just the beginning. Mankind was going to spread out into the solar system. Of course, that didn't quite happen, but there was that enormous technological optimism, you know, at at that particular time. So this calendar sort of reflects that uh, quite beautifully, I think. You know, it's that retrofuturism kind of design that I really yeah. respond well to. And mm-hmm. back then it wasn't retro future. It's, you know, just futuristic design. Yeah. But yeah. I, I love looking back at, especially from the 60s and 70s, at what was thought to be the future in terms of mm. the design and the, the fashion and even some of the hairstyles and just the way sure. things worked. And it's it's a fascinating look into this. Now we look at it as maybe like an alternate reality of what it could have been. Yeah. And and I really enjoy that. Man, I'm really digging this calendar. <laughs> yeah, I, I, thought, I thought you would enjoy it, Derek. Um, but it sort of reminded me of how it, at that particular time, wigs were actually a fashion accessory. Mm-hmm. Women wore them for whatever reason, and this film, as we've said, has an interesting variety of them. You were saying before about how the the production design is so solid Mm -hmm. that it sort of deserved to be carried on to something else. And in many ways it was. Talking about Jerry Anderson again, were you familiar with his TV series UFO? Yes, uh, I I'm a latecomer to a lot of the Jerry Anderson stuff, yeah. but I am familiar with that one. Yeah, you'll probably know your, your, yourself that that wigs and costumes from Moon Zero Two, if not the same, are very very similar, and they turn up in 
UFO, which was actually made at the same time as uh, Moon Zero Two was being filmed. And I don't know if there was ever an official collaboration between the two productions or if somehow the influences just kind of crossed over. But to watch a UFO, you'll see that the Moon Zero Two influence is, is definitely there. I hadn't considered that until you said something. And now that I'm thinking about it, I really do. I mean, from the uh, costume design, the wigs, mm. Uh, mm. the way, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, I guess yeah. we need to go back right. and watch some more UFO. This, uh, oh, look, I'll always be up for watching UFO. But it, it is interesting that this little-known Hammer film has actually had a lot more influence than people people give it credit for, I think. Let's see, when did this came out? What, 69? Yes. So, I'm trying to think of what was the thing at that point in terms of science fiction. 2001 came out what? Uh, was it the year 68, before? the year before. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Planet of the Apes films were just getting started at that point. Yeah. Huh. I'm thinking in terms of films set in the future, you had things like Logan's Run. Oh, yeah. Where once again, that very shiny, very glossy sort of aesthetic was still very much the thing, you know, before Star Wars changed everything. Yeah, I mean, you got some of that that blue collar vibe from like Alien, but then Star True. Wars came came along with that. Exactly, things are dirty and grimy and yeah. need to be fixed grimy. in mid flight, and yeah, 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 huh. It's been said as well that, I mean, let's not mince words, Moon Zero Two was not a success at the box no. office. No. And in fact, what happened, uh, unfortunately, was that it really seriously damaged um, Hammer's long relationship with Warner Brothers. What essentially happened was that Warner Brothers said, okay, well, we'll continue to co-finance the Dracula films because they make money, but everything else is off the table. I'm sorry. Mm. It might not have been solely Moon Zero Two's fault. I mean, maybe that's just the way that things were heading anyway. But yeah, that that's a sort of unfortunate side effect of what occurred there. That is a shame. It I really mean, I'm is. Glad, I'm glad we still got the Dracula films, but I mm. think that, again, kind of ties into one of the biggest issues that a lot of people have with Hammer films now is that they didn't have their own distribution. Yeah. So it's nearly impossible to get a complete Hammer Films box set of anything. Absolutely. Because mm. so many different studios were involved and yeah. you know, Universal did this, Warner did that, Columbia mm-hmm. was here. Yeah, it's just yeah. a mess. Yeah, um, it is. But but I, I was sort of reading, sorry, I've just remembered where I was going with that, Derek. Sorry. <laughs> sure, no, 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 please. Um, some people have even speculated that Moon Zero Two partially contributed to the fact that after that point, there wasn't really any such thing as a low to mid-budget science fiction film. Suddenly, people realized that they had to put the money in. At least science fiction movies set in the future suddenly had to have a decent budget behind them for people to accept them. And I wonder if maybe the whole um, space missions and the lunar landing and everything possibly brought people's own level of sophistication up to where they expected a little bit more from cinematic visions of the future than what a mid to low budget film could actually could actually give them. I mean, those films are st- still around, but more for a novelty value than anything else. I think from that point on, suddenly they became much larger productions. I think you're right. I think you're right. You can see a lot of truth in that. 
the sci-fi B-movie, which we loved so, so much from the 50s and 60s, became a thing of the past, which is a shame, really. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the biggest issues that I've... One of the things that makes me the most sad about the state of genre anyway. When, when I was... Mm. Back when I thought I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I oh, used to I, tell, I um, haven't heard that, Derek. <laughs> yeah, have you? Yeah. So. <laughs> um, when people asked me why I wanted to do horror movies so badly, I told them it, it was because it was the most accessible in terms of budget, that you could get away with making a low-budget horror movie. And that it used to be the same with sci-fi, but mm. now you really can't. You know? Exactly. And, and yeah, maybe if just a little bit more money was thrown at this production-wise, maybe it would have done better. I don't know, but... It's interesting. It had a five hundred thousand pound budget, which was large for for Hammer. Yeah, that's not. And allegedly, they went quite a bit over. So we might even be talking something in the region of six hundred thousand. I mean, it was an expensive production, and I think that's reflected as we keep coming back to with the production design, especially when you look at that calendar. You really do appreciate just how much work has gone into creating that world. Yeah. And the costume design is solid. I mean, some of it is a little bit bizarre, but the <laughs> spacesuits, a lot of the other examples, I really like them. I really like them. I do too. Uh, I, I like the, again, it's that retro future, but I, I like that there was real attention paid to add to the story in the world. I, I think yeah. that's one of the things that a lot of people that aren't, totally geeking out about movies like we do on the regular basis <laughs> don't understand is that you know a movie isn't just you know the actors telling the story there's hmm. the music that helps propel the story there's the production design that helps propel the story the, the costuming the set sound effects it all contributes and it's all just as important and i feel like the production design and the costuming on moon zero two really was a big part of the reason why this feels like a flushed out world to me it does. It does. We've sort of been talking about everything except the story, and I think that's maybe quite telling. I mean, I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with the story itself. To me, it's by no means the strongest thing about this film. I mean, you know, it's quite nicely combined with the Western genre, where you have a mining claim that's being taken over by unscrupulous uh, rich uh, landowners. <laughs> Um, and you know he's a bad guy because he's got a monocle. He's got a <laughs> monocle. And oh, oh, if we can just talk about him for a moment, Derek. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, one other thing that strikes me about this film and, and gives it that sort of disparity in tone, which some people see as a weakness, but I really do wonder if it might actually be a strength, is that the villains at least the two main ones, are played by comedic actors. Right? I thought that was fascinating, too, when I was watching and, this. Like, whoa, that that's... <laughs> I'm used to laughing with that guy, not being worried he's going to shoot somebody. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it almost gives it a Batman 66 kind of vibe. Oh, good point. Which I really enjoy. I mean, Bernard Breslau is ridiculously tall, but the guy is never going to be menacing, no matter... <laughs> no matter how much he looms over you, he just has that face that makes you want to laugh. You know, yeah. And, I can't. and 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 they they um play to it. There's that lovely scene where they're having the the um briefing where they're going through 
all the scientific detail about how they're going to rustle this asteroid and how they're going <laughs> to crash. And it cuts to um, Bernard Breslow's character, Harry, and he's literally nodding off. He's literally falling asleep because it's just way above his head and he can't even <laughs> concentrate. Oh, man. Yeah, he's great. and He really is. It's hard to take him seriously as a threat, even though he's, mm. you know, he's shooting people. You know, he's got a yeah, gun. Like, um, hey, hey, but he's essentially so ruthless and he's dangerous, but there's something about him that you just. <laughs> now, he's not the main villain. The main villain is a guy named Hubbard, and he's the other Absolutely. comic, Warren Mitchell. Yes. <laughs> who's also done B-movies. I mean, he, he was in The Crawling Eye, you know. Indeed. I was just wondering how familiar you might be with him, Derek, because for someone with a British background, as I have, I'm very, very familiar with him. He was essentially the prototype for your Archie Bunker. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. He played the original British prototype of that character called Alf Garnet. Okay. <laughs> and like Archie Bunker, a very right-wing character, who was actually immensely popular. He appeared in more than one television series and then I think even got his own spin-off. So every time I see Warren Mitchell, I just find it hard to disassociate himself from Alf Garnet. However, <laughs> I think J.J. Hubbard is an amazing character. I really enjoyed him. Yeah. He's great. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Westerns. You know, I watch a lot of Westerns, you know, spaghetti Westerns, uh, traditional American Westerns. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a huge fan of Deadwood, you know, things like yeah. that. And I could see that character, what was that, 100% Hubbard? Is that what they call him? Yes, yes. Uh, I could see that character fitting in a setting like that so yeah. easily. Yeah. Uh, and being one of these guys that, yeah, he's the bad guy, but... Mm -hmm. You love to hate him. You kind of want to see him succeed just as much as you want to see the good guy succeed. Because well, he's just so, there's a charisma to him. Exactly. I mean, like like the villains that I enjoy the most, he's polite. He's urbane. He's courteous. Because he knows that he's in control. He doesn't have to be petty or nasty or aggressive. He's just quietly in control and scrupulously polite to mm -hmm. everyone he speaks to. I, I really enjoy that. There's that moment towards the end when all the plans are coming out and everybody's figuring out what's going on and he walks into the room and, oh, so we've reached the confession stage now, have we? It's just like, that's, <laughs> like he's, he's totally in control and knows what's going on, and I love it. <laughs> I, I, I was talking about him being p polite, but I just have to mention the other comedic um, aspect of the villains, his two consorts, yes. um, especially <laughs> the scene where, where one of them is struggling to read the words on her Monopoly card. You can see she's really struggling. <laughs> and and then when she starts fiddling with a huge big TV screen but behind him while he's talking and it switches to this picture of a cow <laughs> and he says, would you stop fiddling with that thing? She says, oh, I've never been to Switzerland. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Oh, man. This... <laughs> <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> I want a Monopoly set. I I, <laughs> I really want a Monopoly set. It'd be fun. Oh, me too. Um, I don't know if I'd want to drink what they were drinking in the bar, though. That that didn't that sound pleasant sound at nice. all. 
No, mm. <laughs> not at all. Well, which was kind of a touch of realism as well. Although there's some signs of opulence or attempts at opulence on, mm. on the moon, sure. it also drives home the fact that they're a long, long way from Earth, that it's difficult to access certain things that we'd take for granted back home. So it just sort of gives you that extra kind of um, feeling of realism. And that, again, adds to that Wild West kind of vibe, too. You know, we're a long way from Scotland, you know, oh, yeah. real scotch, but we'll mix cabbage juice with rocket fuel and call it, what, the Queen, <laughs> the Green Mary or something? That sounds <laughs> awful. Um. <laughs> While we're talking about the um, bard, um, there's a certain face, a certain familiar face in this movie that you might want to mention. Oh, yeah. You know you're watching a Hammer film when my man, Michael Ripper, turns up. Your man. That's right. You got to have Michael Ripper in a Hammer film. And to see him in something that's not a gothic horror film, mm. to see him on the other side of the bar. <laughs> oh, yes. Good point. <laughs> was was really refreshing. And he just brings a certain life to everything that he does. I mean, he's a completely underrated actor as far as I'm concerned. And he's one of the highlights of all things Hammer for me. So to see him in this was just a delight. You've actually echoed exactly what I've written down, Derek. To, to see him in this, in a role which doesn't really have much bearing on the plot at all, it just really brings home that, that adage that there's no such thing as a small role. Right. Only small actors. Michael Ripper, and the tiny bit of screen time that he has, he just presents this completely authentic, believable, charismatic character that just adds a whole extra layer to um, that scene. Yeah, and again, it it adds that layer and it makes it feel more real because now you don't just have some extras in the background or somebody who's given a few lines to say. You're presented with a character that either through the dialogue, the direction, the performance, or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know has a story that's happening just off to the side of the camera somewhere. Yeah, You feel like he's just as real as everybody else here. And I feel like that's really one of the strengths of the entire film is yeah. that everybody here has their own story going on. We just happen to be following Kemp and Clem this time around, you know, but there's something else happening over here uh, with Michael Ripper's character, or maybe the bartender's got a story to tell, you know, but no, nope, yes. you know, and it just all feels full. I suppose the only characters that felt a little flat to me would be the dancers, but that's because we really don't spend any time with them. You know, okay. I'm sure they have something going on behind, you know, backstage when they're getting ready for their performance that night or something. I don't know, but it there's just enough perfect. going on. Yeah. yeah. You know? As, as Westerns, particularly TV series often do, they, they eventually expand on these other characters and sure, you know, if this could have led to other things, it would have been fascinating to see. I would have loved to have seen that. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. What really excites me about this film and science fiction in in general are the model effects. Yes. I think this is one thing, this is one area where this film can hold its head up. I mean, if if you recall the opening sequence, and this is like a double bluff almost, where Kemp is retrieving the satellite. Yeah. And you see a shot of the satellite. My first thought was, well, that's not a very good shot. It's got no detail on it. It just looks like a tiny little model. And then he comes into frame and picks it up, and you realize that it basically is a tiny little model. <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised by that. I thought that it was a nice little bait and switch because I was expecting it to be, you know, it's a satellite. It's big. Yeah. Yeah. No, nope, so he just grabs it and takes it inside. That's perfect. That worked so yeah. well. Worked so well. 
the detailing on the Moon Zero Two ship itself, which is literally a modified lunar lander. Sure. It's just great. You know, I mean, and, and it's a believable world where they're so desperate for resources that they're actually taking these ancient ships and they're modifying them because it's got a modified midsection. And Mm -hmm. I was talking earlier about a sequence which wasn't used. And I think this is a real shame because once again, there are photographs available online. And that is they keep referring to the Lunar Express, the shuttle that runs between the Earth and the Moon. Now, this wasn't only filmed. It was actually filmed twice because, first of all, they decided that it was going to be a United Nations Airways ship. So it was painted in the United Nations colors. It's a large sort of um, roughly delta-shaped craft. So they filmed that docking on the moon. And once they'd done that, apparently Michael Carreras sort of started to get a deal going with Pan Am, who, of course, also had a shuttle in 2001. Okay. So they repainted the model in the Pan Am colors. Once again, there's photographs available online, and it looks great. They refilmed the sequence, and then Pan Am pulled out. They said, no, I'm sorry. If you show show anything with our logo on, we're going to sue you. So unfortunately, they junked the sequence. Mm. And and I think that if we ever get our luxury Blu-ray release, it would be really wonderful if this footage existed somewhere and if they could somehow restore it because it's great work. The um, effects technicians who worked on this film knew what they were doing. Sure. Because in just a few years' time, Les Bowie and Colin Shilvers were to win an Oscar for their work on Superman. Brian Johnson, after he did Space 1999, was to win an Oscar for his work on The Empire Strikes Back. These were seriously talented guys who were doing everything that they could with obviously a reasonably limited budget. I love the model work in this. I like that it's nothing super fancy. It Everything looks functional. Yeah. Um, you know, the moon bug. And I don't don't remember what they called the the thing with the, the bulldozer thing with the blades on the bottom of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, what a... And it makes sense that that's something that would exist there where they're doing mining and they're trying to cut into things to see oh, what's isn't. there and it made perfect sense for it to exist and be there and i really enjoyed that too and even i don't know how effective a gun would re- a six shooter basically would really be on the moon surface <laughs> but there's just something fun about a shootout on the moon <laughs> oh definitely definitely no i thought that was great fun and i like to how they they incorporated what might have been a production concern, and that is being able to identify who's who when they're wearing spacesuits yes. by colouring them. They actually built that into the script, that yep. that was why they had these brightly coloured suits, so you could tell who, who was who, which makes perfect sense, really. It made really good sense. It's like, hey, you know, you work it into the script, and there you go. Yeah. And even the calendar shot that you that we were talking about earlier, yes. you got, they're in two different coloured suits. Uh, just to kind of show off that they can be different colors. And it works. Yes, but space doesn't have to be bland. (laughs) Um, uh, Just one more thing about the model work that I want to mention, because this is a fairly unique shot. And once you realize where it happens in the film, you realize that it is actually quite seamless. When Bill and Clementine are leaving Wally's claim site after they've had the shootout, Mm -hmm. They leave in, in the moon bug, and the moon bug passes behind a rock. 
And then a little while later, you see the moon bug off in the distance, sort of disappearing over the over the craters. That was done in camera. They actually had a trestle table set up in front of the camera with the small moonbug model on it. I think it was about a foot long. They shot the moon, the life-size moonbug disappearing behind the rock, and then they activated the moonbug model, and you see it just disappearing off into the distance, and it looks like a continuous shot, which it actually is. So I just thought that was a really clever piece of work. Yeah, that's really smart. That's so mm. good. Yeah, yeah. So good. That's, and that's that sophistication you know, that makes this movie stand out, I feel like. Yeah. Wow. I, I just wonder, Derek, you, you said you've just seen, watched the movie. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. Mm. So the first time I started watching this, I'll admit I was a little bored because I felt like the real story didn't kick in until about halfway through. Yeah. But as I was watching it this time in preparation for this uh, recording, I found myself, and it's been years since I'd, I'd given it a watch, I found myself really just kind of falling into the world altogether. Yeah. And I, I enjoyed it and was disappointed when it was over because I wanted yeah. to spend more time there. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe there's a few things that are a little silly, you know, whatever. Hmm. When one of the, uh, I guess, bad guys, for lack of a better term, is shot and falls off a rock on the moon, you can tell they basically just tossed an empty space suit down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, I, I could tell that. It's like, well, okay, they did that, but yeah, gravity, something, whatever. <laughs> but, but overall, there's really nothing about this movie that disappointed me other than the fact that it didn't continue. Yeah, I, I get that feeling as well. It's like they've they built this world that you want to spend a lot of time in, and they're giving you what's essentially a pilot episode, Yes. They're they're bringing everyone in. They're bringing it together. They're explaining how this world works. I mean, if this was a TV series, I just wouldn't be able to wait for the second episode because I just have the feeling that that's when things could really start to kick off. But it just has that feeling of an introduction. And I think maybe it's an issue with this kind of movie. When you have soundless scenes in space that involve spacewalking. Obviously, the action is quite slow. When you've got low gravity anywhere, it's usually silent and it's usually slow. And it might sound a bit trite, but when you incorporate all of this into a movie, it does actually have the effect of slowing the pace of everything down. And I feel that Moon Zero Two possibly suffers a little bit from that, that the action and the progression of the story is a little slow just because of the environment that everyone is operating in. Now, being a science fiction fan, I don't have a problem with that at all. But I think that just maybe that might be a factor as to why people didn't take to it as as, as much as they could have. Yeah, I mean, it, it is more deliberately paced yeah. when it gets to that point because it is slow it is you know there's no gravity it's a spacewalk you know things have to slow down a little bit i responded so well to that though but i could see what you're yeah, saying that there could be uh, some issues there i i don't know what you would call it but it was mm. difficult i suppose the first time i watched it because i was a little bored you know that sort of thing but i also was not as a mature filmmaker as i am or film scholar now as i am now or mm. whatever i don't know what mm. that means uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I did enjoy I, I did enjoy it a lot uh, and I did find those moments slow so may, maybe there's some truth there 
maybe there is. Possibly, but just just when perhaps it's not feeling like anything you've ever seen before from Hammer, you get the shot of the skull in the space helmet. Yep. It's such an iconic shot and i think it's really well directed and i think there might even be a bit of a is is there a musical sting or am i just imagining that i don't I just, remember it just has a real shock value to it and suddenly you you remember oh i am watching a hammer film that's right well i know she, i remember she screams and it's a very yes. slow deliberate scream too oh, and, that's right and it, it wasn't this typical kind of like oh no you know it's kind of yeah, a yeah. <laughs> Like her brain is slowly processing everything that she's yes, seeing yes. as she's starting to build up the scream. Perfect mm. acting there for that moment. And I don't know why, but I've always liked the, it, this probably says something terrible about me, but <laughs> I like the image of a skeleton in a spacesuit. Don't mm. know what it is. I've yeah. seen it in other things. I've seen you know, drawings of it. Uh, I've yes. seen, uh, an old podcast years ago used to use it as an image for their cover art. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I love the idea of a, a skeleton in a spacesuit. Uh, a friend of mine here in Oregon, Joe, his production company is called uh, uh, Space, what is it? Zomp, what does he call it? I don't remember what he calls it, but his logo yeah. is <laughs> a skull in a spacesuit. Uh, Robot Monster, you know, has the skull in the, in the diving helmet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just a neat image, and to see it in a Hammer film just makes me happy. There was a Doctor Who episode from a few years ago, which was basically built around that entire sort of Im- image. I think it's such an anachronistic thing. A skeleton makes you think of something very old and very ancient, and to put it in a in a futuristic spacesuit, I think possibly the contrast between those two things is part of the potency of the image, but. You're absolutely right. It's almost a sort of um, psychological image that's embedded in our in our minds. We sort of respond to it uh, instantly. Skullface Astronaut. That's the name of his production company. Ah, perfect. Yeah, perfect. Skullface Astronaut. Yeah. Um, it's just a neat image. And to see it in a Hammer film, and it makes sense that the dead body was still standing because mm. there's no grav there's not supposed to be any exactly. gravity here right so yeah. unless something comes along and disturbs it yeah. it's just going to stand there exactly and when she spins it around to look at him and then he finally crumples and falls uh huh so yeah. cool it is it really is so yeah the movie itself didn't meet the expectations that Michael Carreras especially had for it but isn't it amazing that, what are we, 52 years later, you, you and I, and I'm imagining us in color-coded PVC spacesuits, <laughs> we're harvesting these precious gemstones mm-hmm. from the rubble of the cinematic asteroid, <laughs> which <laughs> might have crashed in 1969. But to have, even if it's just you and I, to have us talking about it all these years later means, I would like to think that there's something there that's that's worth mining to um, coin a phrase. I think so too. I would love to <laughs> have one of those space suits. <laughs> oh, me too. You know? I'd be, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd podcast from one of those. Why not? Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's good stuff. Uh, it's, it's so such an interesting film. When you look at everything that hammer did mm. and, I feel really bad for Michael Carreras in some ways because oh, yeah. I just, I imagine 
you know, he finally gets the studio pointed in the direction of doing something not gothic horror, not mm. you know, bloody, and yeah. it fails. And yeah. I, I kind of get the impression that happened to him more than once. The, the money really was to be made with the gothic horror, with the Dracula, with the Frankenstein films, and he really yeah. wanted to do something else. He famously wrote the Mummy films. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, he felt that the Mummy films had more of an adventure sort of aspect to them than the other more traditional horrors that Hammer were were, were producing had. And, you know, maybe the success of the, of the Brendan Fraser films actually be, bears that out, that there's something about a Mummy that lends it more to a sort of adventure genre movie than, than the other traditional creatures do. But I, I do think it's a shame, you know, as incredibly fortunate as his father was, I think it just seems to be Michael who copped a lot of the bad luck. Projects like Captain Kronos, which we've possibly discussed before, if that had come along a couple of decades later, it would have surfed the wave of adventure horror. It would probably have been a a huge success. But like a lot of things, Hammer was either probably ahead of its time more than anything else. It just wasn't the right time for a lot of these projects to present themselves. And and maybe Moon Zero 2 is, is another example. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways they were kind of ahead of their time. And then as the 70s rolled around, they started to fall behind their, t- behind exactly. their times. Yeah. They just really had a hard time striking at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe this is the best com- – we're the two best people to talk about hitting something at the right time since you're in the future. And, uh <laughs> In my PVC spacesuit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was I was so delighted to find that this film existed, because as you know, when I wanted to do my book, Info Gothic, I wanted to have as broad a span as possible. Mm-hmm. And when people think about Hammer, they think about the um, gothic horrors of the 18th, 17th century or or earlier. Some might even think about the dinosaur films, the prehistoric films. But when I found that I could push it out in the other direction to far-flung 2021, I was just (laughs) absolutely thrilled that I could have a genuine space opera with spaceships and spacesuits and space guns that, that Hammer had actually produced. It was just, it was gold. When I was flipping through Infogothic and I saw, I think I even said something to you when I first saw it. I was like, Moon Zero Two is in here. <laughs> that is so cool There's to no see way that. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What, what a, a great film and a, a good conversation. Before we wrap up, though, I'm not going to let you yeah. go without playing a round of the Classic Five, my friend. Oh, please, please. Got to do it. Got to do it. The Classic Five! Uh, so for listeners who are just now joining us or don't remember, the Classic Five is a game that we play on the show. Normally we do it at least th- the beginning and midway through the show, but this time around we're going to end on the Classic Five. Uh, each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get monster kids talking, or in this case, Keep them talking. Uh, are you ready to play around to the Classic Five, Al? Oh, I sure am. All right, card number one right off the top here. Uh, which movie do you prefer? It, The Terror from Beyond Space, or It Conquered the World? Oh, it's funny how you say there's no such thing as a wrong answer. <laughs> I would have to say it, The Terror from Beyond Space just because I have an affinity with anthropomorphic creatures, humanoid creatures. Okay. In the silent void of outer space, 
puny man matches his cunning against a monster from Mars running rampant, howling for all the flesh and blood on Earth. All right, card number two. Uh, oh, another which movie do you prefer, this or that? The original Nosferatu or the original Dracula? Oh, oh, oh I know, dude. right? Oh. oh, how can you do this to me? Oh, that one's tough. Oh, um, okay. Okay. How can I be diplomatic? Look, Bela Lugosi is a god among men and always will be. His portrayal of the Count will always be untouchable. As much as I love Hammer and I'm a Hammer guy, when you get your average person on the street to impersonate Dracula, it's Bela Lugosi that they will they will impersonate. However, I just have to be really honest and say that Todd Browning's direction, particularly in the latter half of his adaptation, I just feel that it lets Bela's wonderful portrayal down. Nosferatu, on the other hand, are images of such stark primal terror that I just can't get past them in terms of direction rather than performance. And I have to make that distinction, particularly as I'm talking to you. It's beyond iconic. I have a staircase. And because of the way that the lighting is in our living room, it casts a shadow on the wall as you're going up the staircase. And I was I was going up the steps the other night and I kind of looked at the wall and realized that my shadow was on it. And I just couldn't resist. You did it right. I put my clawed hands out and I hunched over and I sort of tiptoed up the stairs and Ruth said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, look, um, it would take too long to explain. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> So my short answer would be Nosferatu. I'm so sorry. Nothing wrong with that at all. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about Nosferatu lately for uh, the role-playing game book I'm working on right mm. now. So, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. Right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, card number three. Oh, favorite mummy movie. This is going to be a short answer. I was actually sending in some feedback to, to another podcast about this particular film. Mm-hmm. Hammers the mummy. The mummy. Fear will freeze you when you face it. The mummy. Torn from the darkest tomb of the pharaohs, it rises from the quiet dust of centuries to wreak a strange vengeance against mankind. The mummy. It tears steel bars like paper. It snaps men's spines like matchsticks. It walks through bullets like a ghost. It sees without eyes, it lives without breath, yet its desires are strangely, madly human. The motion picture screen's most shocking experience in suspense. In chilling Technicolor, The Mummy. Not just for the obvious reasons, but the fact that Christopher Lee isn't just a prototype Terminator. He's not just an unstoppable juggernaut. But when the camera comes in close to his face and his eyes... The quality of the performance that he's giving just with his eyes. When you think about it, he's wearing this really heavy makeup. His body's literally bound up. He's only got his eyes to act with. And his portrayal of Caris is so is so moving and so 
emotive, I just think it takes that film to a whole other level. So apart from the action, apart from Cushing's parkour, apart from everything else that I love about <laughs> a Hammer movie, I think that Lee's portrayal of, of the title character is just untouchable. It's one of the best. Mm. It's one of the best. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Hammer Mummy films, and I think you nailed it earlier when you were saying they had more of a an adventure aesthetic, yeah, than, than some of the other movies. Um, and I love that. Yeah, now, me I'm not too. sure what it is about Mummy films that that have that vibe or what that makes it so easy to add that to the mix. I'm not sure what it is, but. I like it. I remember in uh, 1951 Down Place, you would always say that you were a mummy fan. That oh, yeah. You had a real thing about that particular, oh, yeah. particular monster. And I can, I can see why. Yeah, I'm such a, such a mummy. Yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole thing. And uh, as a, <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. Never mind. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, moving on. Next card. <laughs> Yes, yes, okay. Yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, favorite Ed Wood film? Oh, oh my goodness. <sighs> I am actually going to say Bride of the Monster. Wow. And the reason that I love Bride of the Monster so much is because of famous monsters. Okay. When I was maybe a little bit too young, I got hold of a copy of Famous Monsters. and. What I love about that magazine and always will is that they made no distinction between the most low-budget, poverty-row horror movie and a big-budget, major studio horror movie. They'd lump them all in together and they'd give them equal respect. And I, I always loved that about Famous Monsters. And this particular issue had, um, it must have been a six, eight-page feature about Bride of the Monster where they basically, they had a wealth of photographs and they told the story mm. of the film. Mm -hmm. And they told it in so much detail that I actually adapted it into a play at school. <laughs> because, really? Yeah, because in, 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 in this article, they actually quote lines of dialogue and everything else. So I, so I had the dialogue there. I had the stage directions. So we'd all take turns playing Lobo and <laughs> and I just love the climax about how against all odds uh, is it Vornoff uh -huh. Vornoff becomes his own atomic Superman <laughs> and he throws Lobo about and the lab's destroyed and everything like that. and then the octopus and it just has it all Derek I just couldn't go past it so yeah has to be brighter the monster <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome oh man that's incredibly cool I think more Ed Wood needs to be adapted as a stage play oh look a stage play or a musical or oh. we, we just can't have enough we can't have enough that's true <laughs> that's awesome alright <laughs> final card uh, it's like kaiju how are, how are you on your kaiju I'm okay with kaiju okay. yeah let's see how we go well, we've had Mechanic Kong and Mecha Godzilla. What's another kaiju we need a mechanical version of? Oh, wow. What a great question. I am a Rodan fan. Mm -hmm. I can somehow just visualize a gigantic robotic 
volcanic pterodactyl. Wow. Hurtling through, through, through the air like some sort of airborne battleship, unleashing atomic carnage on the surface and the other kaiju who happened to get in its way. Yeah, I think Mech Rodan would be would be quite something. Yeah, robotic Rodan, you know, keep the keep, keep the alliteration there. The robotic Rodan, you know, ah, the, yes. he's got like maybe flamethrowers in the Rodan. wings and yeah. Oh man. Well that yeah. blows away anything I was thinking of. So that's Oh really? <laughs> well I love and, Rodan too. And and Rodan's one of my favorite non Godzilla I mean, one of my favorite kaiju period. One of my favorite yeah. films from that that the genre. Sure. But I've been in such an Ultraman fan or mode lately that I've been thinking a lot about the kaiju villains that Ultraman fights. And so many of them would be cool mechanized. Like Red King is one of my favorite yeah. kaiju ever. And to see him like mechanized some way would be a lot of fun. But yeah, Robotic Rodan, man, that would be great. This this oh, atomic yeah. powered flame throwing robotic oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think he oh, would wow. be formidable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't seen the new film yet, but the last Godzilla film from Legendary that did have Rodan in it. And when he's swooping by and just leaving a, a trail of destruction in his sonic, sonic boom wake as he's going by, now make that a mechanical Rodan instead. And oh. Is it wrong of me to say that he was actually my favorite part of the entire film? Absolutely not. I thought he was I just, great. I loved it. I just loved how they realized him. I don't know why I have such an attachment to that particular kaiju, but I, I think in terms of bringing him to life in a, in a, in a, in a modern day blockbuster, they, they just did a perfect job. They did a really good job with him. Yeah. Rodan was fantastic. Mm. And so was that round of the classic five. Thank you for playing. Every time you say there's no such thing as a wrong answer, I, I think, well, I'm going to be the one guy who's going to do it. You know what? I play this game every Saturday when we do the movie streams. And yeah. Scott Morris answers every question with Marsha Brady from the Brady Bunch. <laughs> so if anybody's going to get the wrong answer, it's going to be him. <laughs> Mick and Marsha. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, Me this has been a blast, man. This has been so much fun to talk about. To. Uh, Moon Zero Two. It's been way too long. We really need to yeah. do this more than what every year and a half or so. Please, it's actually been closer to two to two <laughs> and a half. Has it been that long? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time. So let's. Uh, yeah, please. I'm always here. Sounds good. Now I follow you on Facebook, but you can learn more about what you're up to. You've got Shoreline Creative. Yes, I'll make sure there's a yes. link to in the show notes at shorelinecreative.co.nz. InfoGothic is still for sale. And listeners, yeah. if you haven't picked up InfoGothic, highly recommend it. Monster Kid Radio approves wholeheartedly. It's a very cool approach to kind of breaking down hammer horror and a little bit of sci-fi since Moon Zero Two is in there too. Sure. <laughs> and, and it's not just a book of infographics. It's... It's a really cool resource, one that I've gone to more than once uh, since I've picked it up. So I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that as well. Is there anything else coming up for you that you want to make sure people know about? Well, first of all, thank you for the approval from, from Monster Kid Radio. That's okay. about the highest recommendation um, anyone could hope for. <laughs> well. In, in in all honesty, in terms of my other illustration work, particularly Hammer-related illustration work, I have um, I have a couple of pieces in the upcoming Little Shop of Horrors uh, issue, which is a horror of Dracula special, 
which is going to be very, very special in, indeed. And I would thor thoroughly recommend that to um, everyone. I spent far too long on my two modest little pieces, but it's just uh, it's just a privilege to to be involved. I've also just recently submitted some previously unpublished artwork to We Belong Dead. Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah, who are releasing a pictorial history of Hammer special later on this year. So there will be some stunning artwork. I'm not talking about mine. I'm talking about some very, very well-known artists. Oh, There's wow. going to be some stunning pieces in, in there. And that's something else to uh, keep on your radar, everyone. So, yeah, that's me. Right on. Well, yeah, we'll keep an eye out for it for sure. That sounds cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. And Little Shop of Horrors magazine, if you aren't reading that, if you're a fan of Hammer Film, if you're a fan of British Gothic film, highly recommend it. It's hard to find a, a better publication. For sure. Yeah, yeah. They keep hiring Al, so you know, you know they've got good taste too. So they can't your way. Again, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And next time you call me from the future, lotto numbers, man. You gotta hook me up. I'm working on it, Derek. I'm working on it. it. Would it help if I maybe crashed an asteroid made of sapphires onto your backyard? Would that maybe do the same thing? That, that might help. That might help. All right. I'll, <laughs> I'll see what I can do. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for retweeting tweets and sharing posts on Facebook and letting people know about this here podcast. Thanks for getting involved in Reddit, on Discord, and joining us on Twitch for following us on Twitter and Facebook and all of that. Thank you for everything that you do to help spread the word and engage with Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Or you can do it while you listen. I don't care. I'm not your boss. You can do whatever you want. Just make sure you do something to let people know how much you love MKR because the more people we have listening, just, I mean, the better. We like to talk you know, have a big community. I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm actually really tired. Uh, I have to go to bed soon. So I'm just going to kind of zip along here. Monster Kid Radio is on Facebook. We have a Facebook group. We have a Facebook page. We are on Twitter. There are links to all of this in our show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. You know what else you're going to find over there? Our contact information. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. You'll also find our Amazon affiliate links, anything that we've talked about in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, up to and including Alistair's book, Info Gothic, Ultra Q, and Ultra Man on Blu-ray, Moon Zero, just everything that we've talked about here. You're going to be able to find a link to to Amazon, and if you buy anything through Amazon, not necessarily the thing that you link to, but anything on Amazon, using that button, well, you're helping us out. If you're shopping at Amazon anyway, you may as well, right? I mean, doesn't cost you any extra, and Amazon throws a nickel or two my way, and it helps keep the podcast going. You know, I mentioned Twitch either at the beginning of the show or early. I don't remember when I mentioned Twitch, but we do have Twitch. We are on Twitch. Look up Monster Kid Radio on Twitch or go to monsterkidmovie.club. This weekend, we are showing movies on Saturday. 11 a.m. is the pre-show, courtesy of Scott Morris. And then around noon, we start the movies themselves. This is all Pacific time. We're going to be showing movies that have a 
you know, I, I guess a strong female presence is the best way to put it. Wild Women of Wongo and Carnival of Souls and The Brain That Wouldn't Die. It's going to be a good time. we got a few other movies lined up as well. Kathy's Curse is going to end the night. So please join us. There's a live chat. It's free movies. It's just a good time. Plus, Tracy Morris's uh, Stuffed With Character is a supporter of the stream. And every other week, she gives away something on the show. There's a drawing, and there's a way for you to get involved in that drawing because this week is one of her on weeks and she's got a brand new figure that she's debuting on the stream. There's only been one other one made out there in the world and you'll be able to get your hands on this figure if you win, if you join us at the Twitch stream this weekend. And then on Tuesday, we do the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, but instead of just straight up science fiction movies the next Tuesday, we're going to go a little weird west, a little weird west, not, not big weird west, just a little weird west. Boy, that's not where I was going with that at all. I was just thinking weird with a lowercase w, not an uppercase w, but we're showing the terror. Oh boy, the terror of Tiny Town is being shown on Tuesday. And then we're also going to be showing a movie called Riders of the Whistling Skull. And then the Star Trek talk with Jeff Pullier and I, we're going to be talking about westerns in Star Trek. So things like Spectre of the Gun and Fistful of Datas and that sort of thing. Uh, so join us for that as well. And that starts around 3.30 p.m. Pacific uh, and runs till about 9 o'clock at night. The Star Trek portion usually starts around 8 o'clock. So please join us over there again. Free chat. We're trying to get the free chat, live chat, free movies. You know what I meant. We're trying to get some activity over at the Reddit side of things. I appreciate uh, Anthony starting a conversation. I think it was Anthony Wendell who started the conversation asking people to post on Reddit what movie was it that turned them into a monster kid. Would love to see that conversation happening over there just to get a little bit more traction on Reddit as well. I know I'm asking a lot of you. Really? All you got to do is listen to the show. All this other stuff, gravy. I just appreciate everything that everybody does for me and for the podcast. You help make this community stronger. What's happening next week on the show? I have no idea. I do know that... I <laughs> That's <laughs> not, not, not really true. I do know that I'll be doing the executive producer roll call, but next week is the first episode of May. And longtime listeners know that May is when we typically do Lucha de Mayo. I did it again. Lucha de Mayo. I didn't do it on purpose, man. I've been saying it right for over a year. And then somebody called me out on it and accused me of saying it wrong. And even though I didn't, it's Lucha de Mayo. Okay. Lucha de Mayo happens in May typically. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get as prepared as I normally would. So I don't know if we'll be engaging in Lucha de Mayo next week or not. It depends on whether or not I can squeeze a recording in with somebody. I do have a couple of people lined up to talk with about some Luchador movies. We'll probably do some Luchador films later in the month. Just won't be a full month dedicated to it. So stay tuned for that. The Luchador movies... Typically, uh, it's these movies from Mexico starring masked wrestlers. What, 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 what am I saying? Masked wrestlers. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. Uh, so Santo, Blue Demon, Mel Mascaris, and the rest, they take on all sorts of baddies, usually monsters, and those are the movies that we talk about here on the show. I've got a couple of Blue Demon movies lined up so far, and we'll see what else trying to think of anything else I need to let everybody know about, but I can't think of anything, so I'm just going to wrap up by letting you know that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. My name is Derek M. Cook. 
I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. I'm not going to edit any of that. Mm-hmm.